Hi, my name's Danny Keller. I'm the president and CEO of African Gold Group, a TSXV listed developer and explorer. I'm also joined on the call with Uwe Engelmann. He is a consultant geologist and the managing director of MinexCon, a company that we've been working with for two and a half years now on the Kubada gold asset in southwestern Mali. Danny, Uwe, good to have you on the call. Good to see you today. Um, I'm really interested about African Gold Group. Uh, when I was preparing for this meeting, I was pretty impressed by Bob, by what you've got going there. I was also quite struck by your um, your share price, which is uh, stubbornly low. Um, could you just give me, before we get into kind of the technical side of things, could, could you give me a quick um, uh, overview of how the market's treating you, kind of what your interaction with, with is of the market at the moment? What are people saying to you? Yeah, so, so thanks, Merlin. I think just to step back one step, um, I've been involved in the company for just over two years. Um, I joined in August of 2019. We inherited a, a legacy company that had been around a long time, and that company had done a fair amount of exploration within this Kubada asset. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that there really hadn't been a huge amount of focus on the technical side. I come from a large corporate background, Glencore, Goldfields, those sorts of companies. And the one thing that I've always found critical is that if you want to stand on a platform and talk about your asset, you need to be able to defend that from a technical perspective. So we've spent just over two years really firming up on the technical side of this asset, which has resulted in obviously updated resources and reserves, but also an updated definitive study. Sadly, you know, the, 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 a company like ourselves, which is effectively a, a development company that's delivered a, an amazing resource reserve over the last couple of months, um, you know, the, the question that comes from most investors is, okay, great, you've done the technical stuff, you have a great asset, you have a great project that can be built, where are you going to find $165 million to build it? And there's always that, that sense of, um, I guess, caution from investors around what are they going to do next? You know, are they going to dilute everything out of the equity to, to raise the money? Are they going to be able to find the debt to, to, to raise in, in the projects in southern Mali? And therefore, basically, we're in this sort of holding pattern where we have a huge amount of interest from investors that see it as a great asset. Um, everything from the definitive study has been very positive coming back from the investor community. I think there's just a little bit of a wait and see to see who's going to put their toe in the water first and 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 put the first sort of cornerstone investment in to move this into um, a construction phase. Um, and obviously, with our current market cap, as you mentioned, it's very difficult to to go to equity holders and ask them to put put their hands up first. So we've been talking predominantly to debt providers. Um, ultimately, large-scale debt is the best way to go because it's reasonably cheap compared to mezzanine debt. Um, but we, we, we see that this would be a combination of both um, large banks and mezzanine providers that would provide the, the debt portion of the, of the raise. And then we would go back to the equity side and, and, and top it up with, with the equity side. So, but hang I on. This, yeah. Sorry, just let, let's let's not get into the debt side of things. Um, you've just done a capital raise. You've just raised five million, yeah. Right. And um, th when you were selling that, um, surely you were using the the kind of the comparable analysis to say that we are much cheaper than our peers. Yep. You know, um, what what do you see um on a what do you see yourself trading out on a on a per ounce basis? 
Um, um, we're uh, on an EV to total resource. We're probably at around um, six dollars an ounce compared to our peers at uh, upwards of sixty to seventy. Um, EV to total reserve probably ten versus our peers at maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty. Um, so clearly, you know, this is this is this is really showing that we are undervalued. Um, There's a massive disconnect. There's a massive disconnect because you've got um, resources and reserves. You've got a feasibility study. It's these are oxide ounces, um, it, free dig at surface. So there's um, w- when I when I first called around, I said, "What? Well, um, I, I I've got." friends who know West Africa very well. I haven't um, spent a lot of time in the gold sector of West Africa in the last six months or the last 12 months. But um, I said, what's what's the story with African gold? And the feedback was, oh, it's, this, it's a Forbes and Manhattan company. It's It's got that uh, legacy thing. But I went through your M- um, MDNA and you've, you've got zero liabilities and zero connections there. So in a sense, that's clean. Yep. Is, it, is that correct? It's That's 100% correct. And that, and that, that, I guess, is the slight frustration. We've been through a process from late 2019 of effectively divesting all of our liabilities and responsibilities with Forbes and Manhattan, including removing um, all of their historical board members from the board, um, cancelling and terminating all consulting agreements uh, with Forbes and Manhattan, cancelling office services agreements. And in March of this year, we effectively emerged as a, as a very clean company. Unfortunately, I think that there is always this overhang um, of of the market perception of what's happened in the past. And it's really just getting that message out there that we are 100% free from any prior Forbes and Manhattan relationships. Um, The only thing Forbes and Manhattan have is a small shareholding in in African Gold Group, which it makes them a a small shareholder, not not a medium or a large size shareholder. And we've even had a very good uh, success in divesting um, what is what was predominantly an, a Canadian and North American shareholder base to much more global. So we now have European, London, and a fair amount of Australian investors on board. So I think that the message that we really should be getting across is that we are 100% unencumbered. We have no liabilities. Our balance sheet is clean. We have no um, relationship or anything else with Forbes and Manhattan. Um, we've done a very good job in cleaning all of that up over the last two years. But I think, as you as you rightly say, there, there tends to be this legacy thing that people think of the past and they think, oh, that's a, a Forbes Manhattan company. So I think that has dragged us down. Um, I also think that, you know, a single asset in Mali is, is, is also perhaps discounted more than if you have two or three assets around that spread the risk a bit. Um, but again, we can talk about Mali. I... You know, I've worked in Congo, I've worked in Zambia, and if you gave me a choice, I would work in Mali before any of those countries any day. So, well, you're, think, you're, yeah, you're not alone. Um, Mark Bristow um, always preferred the, the I mean, he always says that the, the Francophone countries of West Africa is where the, the 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 laws are clear and it's much easier to to operate and maintain title. He did eventually, of course, with Wrangell going to the DRC, but um, I think by preference he would have stayed in Francophone West Africa, um, right. and. And Mali's got a, a superb um, track record of uh, responsible mining uh, at an industrial scale in the south and the west of the country. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I also, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not worried by about being a single asset company. When you're not in production, it's it's very sensible to focus on your on your lead project when it's quality and it's got scale. Um, <clears throat> 
in, in your in your presentation, you list four kind of institutional shareholders: um, Ixios, Nero, L1, and Parla. Have they been? Uh, are they new? Are they, are, are, did they come in in this most recent placing, or have they have they been? Are they supporting? Are they following their interest? Are they adding? You know, what's the what's the institutional support like for the company? Yeah, the institutional support has been really good. Um, I think we've gone from around eight percent institutional support pre uh, July twenty twenty to close to forty percent now. Um, we've seen all of the shareholders that came in in that big raise that we did last year. Um, July, August of around $11 million. All of them came in on that raise. All of them have continued to support us and um, remain as, as, as very supportive shareholders um, with a view that this will go into a construction and operation phase. So I think we've done a good job in, in communicating with our with institutional shareholders. We've certainly seen a lot of interest out of Australia. And I think you know the, the, the Australian investor community understands West Africa very well. Um, they understand there are some risks, but they understand that there are rewards there. And we've seen a, a big uptake from in the last two raises of, of Australian investors coming in um, into the stock and, and remaining in there and continuing to support it through, through volume in the screens. Danny, thank you. Um, and I'm sorry, I know this is supposed to be a technical interview, but I, I needed to understand the corporate background. I needed to understand that shareholder register so I could just put the the, the technical side of things into, into context. So, um, and Uwe, I'm not going to get to you yet, but I'm going to um, still stick with, with Danny in the study. Um, <clears throat> the, if the feasibility study, um, Danny, you're looking at... Um, 100,000 ounces per annum, and you've reduced the capex of the project. Um, I can't remember what it was in, in, in the previous study, but you've reduced it to $165 million. Can you just tell me how you've managed to reduce uh, that capex and what areas were the, were the, were the reductions in the costs? Look, what we, the, the, the actual number hasn't reduced. It's gone up slightly. Um, but what it has done is it's brought in around another 500,000 ounces of sulfide reserves. Um, so what the big difference between last year and this year was we focused heavily on bringing in um, the additional exploration holes that we hadn't managed to include in the previous study, and that was mainly in the oxides. We also then brought in all of the sulfide resource that was sitting in MNI that we could we could bring in within the existing pit shell um, by making sure that we did a very comprehensive test program. So this latest study is really showing a highly flexible operation that can treat oxide sulfides, it can treat a mixture of both. Um, predominantly, as you mentioned at the beginning, oxides for the first seven years, free dig, almost no blasting, very straightforward, um, very easy open pit mining through a very simple crushing milling gravity um, <clears throat> uh, through to um, CIL and, and electric winning and, and furnaces. And then obviously what we do is we bring in the sulfides, which happen to be free milling and can also be treated through exactly the same process in year seven. So what you're seeing is a, a little bit of a juggling with the capital. So very similar up front, um, a little bit more in year six, where we have to bring on a, an additional crushing and milling plant for the sulfides. But ultimately what we've done is we've A, proven that this is a, a mine that can now treat all of the oxides and sulfides on our property. There's no surprises anymore. Um, which I think was a little bit of a question mark from last year's discussions with investors. Why are you not tackling the sulfides? Now we have this very flexible plant that can treat anything. Um, we can throw a mixture of both at it. And we've also pushed the, the production out from 
100,000 ounces for the first five years to 100,000 ounces for the first 10 years. So we really are seeing a mine now that is stable at 100,000 ounces a year for 10 years. It has a 16-year mine life, and it has this massive exploration upside, which I'm sure we're going to get to talk about, where we know that we're going to fill in those those last six years um, with additional ounces without any problem whatsoever. So I think capital-wise, if you have a look at us in terms of, 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 of capital cost per ounce of gold, we're way down on the on the cost curve. We've kept it very lean and mean. Um, we've used a company that have done 11 or 12 of these plants in West Africa called Senet. Um, they've just delivered one across the border 60 kilometers away at Trike, which is a very similar plant. So we know the CapEx is good. We know we can defend those numbers. Um, and we know that we can do, deliver that plant in 19 months from, from start of construction. So I, I think that we've really spent a lot of time on these studies, firming up the numbers to the extent that I can sit here today very confident that, that we will deliver a $165 million plant producing 100,000 ounces of gold. Just to be uh, controversial, perhaps, but given that you've got 3.4 million ounces in your resource base and you've got all of this exploration potential on the shear, is it, um, is it possible that the correct way to approach this development should actually be 200,000 ounces a year or 250,000 ounces a year? I mean, if you were a big company, would you step back and say, hang on, let's, let's think about the resource base here and let's make this a top tier or kind of top quartile asset capable of producing quarter million ounces a year for 10 years? Um, is, is, is that a luxury you don't have, but you kind of dream about sometimes in the bath? Yeah, I do, I do dream about a lot of things in the bath. And one of them is, 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 is sort of further optimization of the study. And, and that is something that now with our current raise just completed, we have a little bit of flexibility to be able to look at that. Um, take someone like Tieto, for example, um, in Côte d'Ivoire, the Abuja project. I think they've just come out with a, a study that's pushed their production number up quite significantly to more than 200,000 ounces. We will have a look at all of those those things, Merlin. I mean, you know, we're a 3 million tonnes per annum plant. A 4.5 million tonnes per annum plant would theoretically give us 150 plus thousand ounces a year. Um, I think when you you listen to what Uva's got to say, the, the upside potential in terms of bringing more ounces in, it may not be at a higher grade, it may be at a similar grade, but it will certainly be a significant amount more ounces obviously doesn't make any sense to, to plod along at 100,000 ounces for 20 years. So we would have to go back and have a look at optimising that for a slightly larger plant. Um, a 4.5 million tonnes per annum plant is not big in West Africa these days. It's fairly standard. It's it's almost not an off-the-shelf plant if you have a look at some that are going in now. And I think that's something that we would really have a look at. And, and the, we, we have that flexibility now because we have a, little, a nice healthy cash balance, which is always good. Um, and we can start to do some of those other studies that would potentially push that 100 up to probably comfortably 150. I, I wouldn't want to commit to any more yet. Um, but obviously, then we would have to get back the drills back in the ground and get some more ounces in the back end to be able to make this a, you know, I, I've always worked on the assumption that you want a 10-year life to, to, to give you the flexibility to build the plant, get it into production, and then still have enough time to continue to explore and, and back up some more ounces on the ones you're producing, anything less than 10 starts becoming a little bit shaky because you, you generally don't have enough time to drill, upgrade the resource, upgrade the mine, and then continue to, to you know, to, 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 to add ounces to the back end. But 10 years, 
at 150,000 ounces, in my opinion, is, is very feasible on this deposit. And it's just a case now of starting to do some of those, those economies of scale studies, which will certainly um, give us more benefit on the capex and it will certainly give us more benefit on the operating cost. And crucially, it will give you more leverage in the market because when, you, when you're a uh... 200,000, or I, I, I keep coming back to 200,000 ounces, but um, I'm dreaming big. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, 150,000 ounces with flexibility on the upside, um, that gives you just mu- that much greater weight and impact in the market. And you become more relevant to uh, the, the kind of a, a, a bigger peer group, kind of a, a larger market cap peer group. Um, so let's, let's go to the geology. Um, Uwe, you're on. So let me just let me just shall I share this? Do you want me to share the screen and just put a couple like a couple of slides up? You can pull them down. Yeah, yeah, please do. Okay, so um, just jumping into the overall um, geology, I suppose you're very familiar with it. As you can see, where it is there in the centre, the Kabada, that um, um, hammer there, um, three point one million uh, ounces. There you can see it's sitting within the Burundian belt in, in West Africa, um, which. Most of the, the gold mines for of uh, West Africa are lying in, in Ghana, in Cotahuas, or uh, uh, Mali. So, yeah, the address, a perfect address. Uh, so I don't think there's any debate about are we in, in the correct address in, in that respect. Okay. So just a bit more. We, we're sitting on the, the West African on there. Um, so, it's in, like I said, it's in the Burimian, um on the, the man shield. In, in our case, we predominantly metasediments. So we generally speaking, we in, in the grey, wacky, siltstone, mudstones, um, we, don't, we have intercalated uh, volcanic sediments, but not too much of that because we're sitting on the border of the Seguri um, Basin and the uh, Janfalila granite greenstone belt. So if, if you go more to, to the east, you, you're basically going into the, into the granite uh, greenstone belt and we're more in the Seguri uh, Basin. So where's Jan Fulila to the east of us, they're sitting in, in that um, greenstone belt. And like I said, we're in the, in the Seguri Basin, basically, uh, more in the, in the, in the meta sediments. Our um, deposit is really associated, or the, the current one where the, our current resource is, is associated with the, the main Kabado sh- uh, shear zone, as we've, uh, at, or as it's been termed over the, over the years on the project, which has got the north northeast uh, tre- main trend which is similar to a lot of the mines that you can see in one or two of the slides later on, that the upside potential within the, the, bound, uh, within the, the boundary of, of the permit area or the three permit areas, they all got very similar orientation as, as the one that we, we've got in the, in the Kabada shear. Okay, Danny? Um, it's, it's the mineralization. Oh, here we go. I was gonna yeah, ask, so, yeah, so it's, it's orogenic, uh, mesothermal, uh, pretty much being the shallow to uh, medium to, to, to shallow, mesothermal, and definitely within the compressional, transpressional um, uh, deformation processes where the fluids uh, come from uh, deep-seated fluid, the hydrothermal fluids come up and um, utilize the, the pathways within the structures in, in, in these areas. And as they, they rise up, they precipitate out when they start getting the correct uh, geochemical and the, the t- temperature and pressure uh, um, uh, domains basically coming through there. So it pretty much is the, I'd say, a stock standard orogenic mesothermal um, gold deposit. I think where the, the upside or what's nice over here is that it's in what we've turned, and I think that's on the, on the next slide, uh, Danny, is um, 
it's sitting on a, on a dextral uh, shear that um, includes the, or has also got uh, redal uh, shear um, structures and features. So when we started developing the model um, back in 2019, we collated all the historical data that, uh, that was um, collected over the years and started putting it into the leapfrog because there, there was very little structural information available. And I suppose one of the, the problems over here is that it's so deeply weathered is that it's, we, we can't or we really str struggle to orientate any kind of core in, in the saprolite. So it's very difficult getting accurate structural readings in, in the saprolite where the predominantly or where the, the, the majority of the, the resource is sitting. So what we did is we, we went into uh, LeapFrog and we started using uh, implicit modeling there, having a look at the trends that we picked up you know, or could pick up um, from, from the data and some kind of domaining. So we normally generally start with the ISO um, shell without any kind of direction, just to see what we start picking out. And what we then put together, and there is a slide a bit later that actually shows what the final outcome was of this, um, the modeling process, where we had a couple of iterations uh, looking at um, the different um, orientations of the, of the shears and, and the veins that, that, that we were picking up in, in the historical uh, data. So what came out of there, um, we had a model that we were fairly happy with. And then at some stage, I can't remember exactly when it was, uh, Dr. Uh, Andy Rompel joined um, AGG. He's a structural um, geologist. And in conjunction with him, uh, we basically, so this is our conceptual model that we put together. It's, it's a dextral shear with a, a, a rydal. Uh, a system in it where we've got the, the synthetic and antithetic um, shears. And I think that is one of the, the nice things over here where, where it makes there's a, there's a wide uh, lower grade ore body in relation or in conjunction with the higher shears that we, we've got coming through. Um, we we've, uh, think it's a, a more of a compressional area where we are and that the the east, more east-west trending shears that we've got are extensional gashes, which uh, generally speaking seem to have a little bit higher grade, but not that much more. So if you have a look at the, the, the shears or, or the, the orientation of the veins and the shears uh, that we've picked up, it's basically almost every compass point um, gets uh, mentioned kind of thing. So you can see the synthetic and the antithetic uh, zones coming through. And with, within in that area, you've got the, the higher um, grade um, quartz uh, carbonate veins, and that's a, it's a combination of veins, veinlets, multiple veinlets, stockwork, and it's the areas where you've got a, a higher network of the synthetic and antithetic um, veins coming through that you get the, the juicy part of, of the actual orbit. But um, just to sum off on this one, you can see on, on, the, on the right there, <coughs> The, the, north, the, the main Kabata shear, which, like I said, all the other shears are basically uh, run parallel to that. And the, the main um, direction being the north-northeast direction, which we can also see going from our, um, our project into the, the, the Cora Gold project where they're busy um, doing press releases. And it seems to be part of the same kind of system coming through. And then the, the, the other main, I suppose, um, direction is the east-northeast which is more of the east-westly synthetic um, uh, uh, veins that are coming through there. And you'll see one of the photos a bit later where I think it kind of a, a shows it quite clearly or quite nicely um, the upside or I think what the, uh, which, which is a very 
positive or nice thing about the, the Kubota project is that it's a, a, a wide ore body that you can have low uh, or lower um, stripping ratios and your, your waste that you need to get to the higher grade is pretty uh, is actually carrying grade in, in, in that respect. So you, you can have a look at different um, mining method uh, or, or mixes where you've got the low grade stockpiles, which I think is what's been brought into the, into the whole um, mining design where one can then play with that. And if one does get another shear zone a bit later, have the high grades there and mix it with some of the old uh, or, or stockpiles that are lying around. So the options are there for, from, from that uh, point of view. Okay, Danny. Let, let's move on. But is the um, is the mineralization in the fractures, or is there any kind of bleed into the sediments? Are, are, what's the porosity and permeability of those sediments, the meta sediments? Are they quite, quite impermeable and brittle? And did the, the is is the gold on micro fractures, or is it disseminated through the um, the host rock as well? Majority of it is in, in, in the actual fractures, and that's what I'm saying. Where you've got the really juicy part of the ore bodies, where you've got a higher network of, of these veins coming through. But um, just to – so the, the photo that you see on the screen now kind of shows the, the lateral and the sapolite. But I want to, the, the point I'd like to make over here is you can see it's not like the, the artisanal mining in a lot of the, the greenstone bells where they follow the thin half a meter to meter shears and, and they just take that out. You can see that they actually mine everything out there. And I think that that's the 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 uh, a nice thing about this ore body. It's free dig in places down to 160, 180 meters. And um, if, if there wasn't grade in the surrounding material, the artisanal miners wouldn't be mining in it. When, you, when you're on site and you see them panning it, there, there's also areas that don't have any of, the, um, of the, the, the vein material and they're picking up free gold within there. So there must be some of, of the leaching going on in there, but in, 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 primarily it is within those shears and, and, and the veins basically. Within, well, and like I said, from what we picked up, it's in all of the directions basically. So you're essentially saying that the, the you've got a fracture network within a, in a, um, a sheared fabric or a kind of sheared belt or a zone, um, and that there may be some dissemination through to due to um, weathering or um, meteorological processes, surface enrichment or surface distribution, remobilization. Okay, great. Let's let's crack on. So there's just a, a quick. Um, so you got the the, the usual lateralized satellite, and, and the previous one there was just showing the actual mineralization, uh, the mineralized ore body. Um, moving on to the the overall concession. I mean, we've got the three uh, concessions. We've got the, the main Kabada one. Then you've got the one up north, the Faraba, and then the Kabada East, or as it's called over there, is the Kabada Est. Um, and there you can see. The, the open pit at the Kambada Shear, I don't know, Danny, if you could maybe just show where the open pit is. So that open pit, that's the four-kilometer strike that's sitting in the current resource. So if you have a look at that from a, just from an overview, you can see only a very small portion of the 55-kilometer 50, 50, potential shear is actually, or is actually finding its way into our, our current resource. So the other is still the upside potential. The only other area that's really been had any kind of drilling done to it is the Gossa, and there we've also only got around about 21 balls or so. And what we're picking up there is that the, the grade is very similar to, and um, the grade as well as the, the, the actual geological features that we're seeing there, the, the veins and the stock work and all the rest of it, looks very similar to what we're picking up in the, in the Kabata Shear. And that area around now is it. We don't have it in a resource yet, but we can see that the, the um, mineralization is around about um, 750 meters long in, in strike. And some of the, the next drilling that we're going to be doing 
will be for additional infill and then stepping out to to have a look at what's uh, going over there. So there the 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 overall mineralization is slightly thinner if you look at the overall um, shear zone, so to speak. But the grade is very similar, uh, if not slightly higher, by the looks of things than what we're getting at Kabada. So the next step now would go and be to go and do some um, rab drilling or um, auger drilling on some of the other areas uh, or target areas that we've got. I, th okay. I think just for, for my just to add into that, I, I think that in the last two years we've we've had a very strong focus on really defining a resource that is is economically viable to mine to our reserve, and. All of that drilling then really has been focused around this very small four kilometer area, which has given us this 1.25 million ounce reserve and 3.1 million ounce resource. As Uva says, we, we really did some step out drilling just to test the continuity on this Gosso shear, the green one there. Um, we've done very little drilling anywhere else on this, this property, but we're very comforted by the fact that um, there, are, there, are, there is continuity through these shear zones from historical artisanal workings. And again, I think people get a bit nervous about artisanal workings. For me, it's one of the best indicators of gold in the ground. Um, most artisanals can only really mine down to maybe sort of 10 to 15 meters um, in that saprolytic material because it's very soft. Um, as Uva says, we've got material down in places to 180 meters of saprolite. So clearly, you know, the dilution from artisanals is very minimal on the overall resource, um, but it is a great indicator of where we should drill next. And you know, in the 20-odd thousand metres of drilling that we've done since I've been involved, um, without sort of blowing our own trumpets, we pretty much get a hit on every single drill hole. And, and the reason for that is because we have a very good understanding now of where those shear zones run, um, partly because of some of the artisanal workings, but also because of the regional um, geology that, that we've layered on top of each other to go and, to go and find those. So, for example, recently you would have seen some press releases from this whole Kabata Est um, and fee share down here in the corner. That is the one, as Uva says, that really sort of translates through into the Cora Gold properties where they've come out with some pretty good grades and resources. And then the Gosso share here where um, we've only delineated about 750 metres of what we believe to be 10 kilometres of strike, but already that is shaping up to be something that could be easily converted into a, an indicated resource with a bit of extra drilling. So... You know, in, in summary, without belaboring the point, this is 250 square kilometres with 55 kilometres of shear zones of which only four or five kilometres has actually been drilled um, to, to develop any sort of resource. And, you know, away from prodding holes, you know, across 20, 30 kilometres of strike just to prove the gold is there, we've been very disciplined on bringing this thing into a, a project that can be built. Um, I think, you know, and we can talk about it, the next steps are to start to test some of these shear zones a little bit more um, to just make sure that the continuity that we believe is there is there. Uh, and suddenly then it starts to shape up to be something, as you, as you mentioned, Merlin, that could be a 200 plus thousand ounce producer by delineating some of this into an, a measured and indicated and, and obviously a reserve. And um, are there artisanal workings down all of those four shears? Yeah. Including yeah, I mean, the because the only one you haven't mentioned so far is Kabada East, yeah. um, uh, and has that also got uh, artisanal working on it? Yep. Yeah. So, so what what you find with the artisanals is there's obviously they 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 target outcrops. Um, the laterites are, are attractive to them, not because they're easy to dig, but because the walls stay up. Um, the laterites tend to be eight to ten meters deep. 
um, or six to 10 meters deep. And that's where they find some of this nuggety gold that is easy to, um, to pan out and, and produce gold quickly. And the saprolites is a little bit more difficult unless they can actually find some of the quartz areas. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are literally pits all the way along those, those shear zones, which, which effectively overlay all of the regional geology that we've, we've added, we've added and layered on top of it. So, you know, it, you can, you can put a, a drone up and literally follow that shear zone all the way through all of those exploration areas. It's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. I think it was actually the, the following slide or the next slide, Danny, that actually has got some of the, um, the Kabata S, now that you mentioned the Kabata S. So if you want to have a quick look at that, that just goes to show some of the um, artisanal mining that we've got there. So we were starting to, as an as initial, just uh, um, directly just to start looking, can we put some um, trenches in and, and so forth? I think it's next one, next one, next one. There's Kabata S. Is that the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, there, there we go. So there you can actually see. So those are just some examples of what uh, Kabata S is looking like, which is very similar to what we're seeing in um, uh, Gossa as well as uh, um, at Kabata. So you can see on, in the top one, which is one of the pits, and we just got photos of two of the pits here. It's a combination of, in some areas, you've got the, the, the top left where you've got the, the stock work kind of material. Then you go into the one in the, the top middle, which is more of a, of a wider zone coming through. Um, and, and the bottom one as well, wider zones, the, the bottom right, you can see it's almost like a, a appreciated zone coming through there at times. So it, it's a whole combination um, of, of is, it, is it like a metre or two, uh, I mean, uh, one and a half to two metre um, vein coming through, which, is, uh, which one gets down to a stock work and this kind of material. And I think, and I think that's the, the, the beauty of here is that your, your waste is very, pretty much carrying grade here that you can u- utilize at a later stage for, for, for stockpiling, for, for mining mix, basically, uh, uh, your grade mix. Great. Um, Ube, thank you very much. I, I, no uh, are there any other key high points, highlights you want to um, make on the geology? But I've, I've got a couple of other questions before we wrap up. Uh, I think that from a geological point, I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, um, the only one maybe is the, the model, if you wanted to have a look at that, that we've got in there, that we, we um, basically our final model after all the iterations we've done, which was tested then with the, that 18,500-meter drilling. So the, the drilling, the, the phase one and phase two drilling, was a recommendation to um, confirm some of the historical data, but also confirm the new model that we've got. And I think that's why we've got a fairly a high confidence in the model and happy to put it into M&R the way we have is because of the confirmatory drilling that was done that actually spoke or actually confirmed the, the model that we had actually put together um, from the geophysics and the data and leapfrog and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think from a geological point of view, that's pretty much a wrap. Great. Well, um, Uwe, thank you very much. I've got um, three questions. Um, did you look at heat bleach for this? Yes, we did. Um, so so we, what we did was when, when I joined in 2019, I had a look at the studies that had been done before. Um, they certainly, maybe I'll just be diplomatic about that. They were not to the standard that, that I would expect for a, for a project that had been in, in and around for so long. And um, so what we did was we took um, representative samples across the ore body, um, Uber from core, um, uh, and we went back and we tested everything again. So we, we, we tested heap, we tested gravity, we tested gravity plus CIL, um, and basically the heap, the challenge with the heap was that because the gold is fairly finely disseminated, 
um, the cost of agglomerating that to put it onto a heap was was about you would almost have to put a cement plant next to your to your process plant to be able to agglomerate. It was about two hundred kilograms a ton. Um, and the problem as well with a heap is that a 15-metre heap, if you can't agglomerate it properly, as the pressure comes on from the fluids being di- and, you know, diluted down, those, those agglomerated particles collapse and then you get pooling and, 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 and all sorts of stuff that don't work very well, as you know. Um, gravity, which was the preferred method when I, when I joined the company, um, was done on a very rep- unrepresentative sample of part of the ore body that did recover very well through gravity techniques. And not surprisingly, that study was done by the supplier of gravity equipment. Um, We did test gravity. We only saw about 28% recovery through the gravity process um, overall across the the ore body. Um, But that's good enough to be able to put a a gravity plus ILR in there. But CIL was really the only way we could recover around 94, 95% of the overall gold. And the challenge with, uh, with mining a fairly low-grade ore body, even though these days, you know, 0.9 to 1%, one gram a ton is not that low-grade, is that you want to get as much of the gold out as possible if you've gone through the whole effort of getting it out of the ground, stockpiling it, blending it, and putting it into a plant. So for us, it was a a good exercise to, um, to make sure that we were choosing the right processing option going forward. Um, And we've tested that on numerous occasions with additional variability test work and every time that is coming out gravity plus cio as as the best way to go good thank you um it, i also noticed that in one of the appendices to your um to your presentation you've got a section on um global aisc um, um uh, costs at kind of whatever it is twelve hundred dollars per ounce um and yet your uh, anticipated AISC is um, remind me it's it's, it's at nine seventy I think nine seventy why why do you include that global slide is that um, and are you going to you know are you going to meet the benchmark or you know what gives you the confidence to be below the benchmark well, well look, one of the reasons why it's in the appendix is that I don't think that's something that you brag about when you're still a a developer and, and not a producer and we, we're obviously benchmarking against producers that that are, are have physical costs um, you could also argue that some of those producers will calculate things in a different way so it's a little bit of a subjective slide however i think the reason for adding something like that in is that and and you will see it through this year now as as most of the producing gold miners are, are reporting you're seeing a fairly large jump up in all in sustaining cost numbers from last year now that's a number of reasons. I guess it's a, a, a lag of impacts of COVID. Um, it's the, the global steel price. Remember, iron ore was way over $200 a tonne um, most recently, um, and, and that's still impacting steel costs. Fuel prices almost doubled since last year. So a lot of your, your input costs in terms of building the plant and operating the plant have gone up significantly. So I think it was really for us a sanity check to make sure that at 972, we were not out of the park here. Um, can we achieve that? Well, you know, I think you can, You can. we will say yes, we can, because the way we've calculated those inputs and the capital costs are from firm quotes for delivery, and, and that is 2021 prices. So we're not, we're not having to add escalation and things like that into that. Um, but there are continuing inflationary impacts, as we've seen for, through most of the, 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 the first world countries that are producing a lot of this stuff. And, you know, we, we will do our best to keep to it. But, yes, we can certainly 
show confidently that the calculation that we've made to get to that number can be defended by firm quotes from suppliers um, and and very up-to-date costs from mines in and around us for things like security, transport, logistics, um, and, 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 and other, I guess, non-quotable or non-sort of uh, firmed up numbers. So I, I think I'm pretty confident that we can, we can hit those sort of numbers and, and possibly even beat it um, by being a little bit clever about how we, we build this plant and, and operate it. Good. Um, thank you. It's, it's nice to hear people talking realistically about industry costs and the difference between um, the, the, the forecast costs of a, a, of, a, of a study relative to, oh, look, we're going to come in below the benchmark, significantly below when there's actually a, a real world example out there. So it's, it's, it's good to hear you talking about that. Um, now, before we go, just the last thing is um, you said that your capital raise has given you a little bit of extra time. It's, it's bought you a bit of extra time because you've got the, um, some, some more treasury. Um, so can you just kind of remind me what you're going to be doing over the next six months, um, eight, nine months as your kind of your plan of attack uh, in terms of operations and studies and what you'd be really looking to do? Yep. So, so um, very simply... Um, our two exploration concessions, which are to the north and the south of our mining permit, um, were renewed in August of this year, which was great news for us. So we have three years additional uh, time on those permits to decide what we want to do with them. There are obligations from the Malian government to spend a certain amount of money on those to con- continue to keep them active. Um, we've done most of the, I guess, the easy stuff on those on those concessions now. We've delineated the shear zones. The next step is we have to do some drilling on those. So there's certainly some budget in there to do drilling on the exploration concessions. We're toying with with ideas of putting a drill back in and seeing if we can convert some some more of the inferred resource within the current pit shell into measured and indicated. But again, the trade-off there will be, you know, if we're going to go from 1.25 million ounces to 1.35, is it really worth spending that money right now when we've got plenty of ounces to, to get going with? Um, and then there's obviously the, these additional studies, and, and you hit the nail on the head by saying now that we have a very strong technical base and we have all of the information from the geology side, a good understanding of the structural geology and a good understanding of the model, we should be starting to run some scenarios now on bigger plants, smaller plants, um, and, and what, what can we get out um, economically for for the best bang for our buck. So we'll be doing some of those studies with our engineering partners over the next six months or so as well. Danny, thank you. So it's a, a really good summary. I look forward to following the news. Uwe, good having you on board. Um, I look forward to the next one. Thanks, Merlin. It's great to chat. Thank you.